Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a movement underway in Connecticut to reform our criminal justice system. Governor Dana Malloy is leading efforts to change policy with his Second Chance Society. The proposals, some have become laws, are meant to help nonviolent offenders restart their lives on the outside. Mass incarceration impacts more than the individual in prison. A national report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation says the incarceration of a parent, quote, can have as much impact on a child's well-being as abuse or domestic violence. Today, where we live, we'll speak to a Connecticut nonprofit, one of two groups that decided to look further into how the state can better serve children of incarcerated parents. Joining me in studio are Erica Dean, policy analyst at the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Also, Nishka Ayala. She's a Central Connecticut State University student and daughter of a formerly incarcerated parent. Erica and Nishka, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to start with you, Erica. Tell me about this this state-specific report that's being released, and there's a panel discussion. You know, what made you look at this specific issue? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, The Connecticut Association for Human Services is partially funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And when we learned that they were going to be releasing this report, we actually wanted to know what was going on in Connecticut to support these youth to both through program and legislation. So when we kind of dug around and did our research, we found that there are various programs throughout the state that are really terrific. They help support families. They help support children during this difficult time. On the other side, we found that legislation is lacking, and there have been some um, pieces of legislation that were attempted to have been pa- to have been passed in the past, mm-hmm. but nothing actually ever came to fruition, and everything died. So, what we are hoping to do is, particularly like you said, with the governor's um, second chance, yeah, with his second chance. Um, interest and his interest in really helping prisoners re-enter into society, we want to focus on children. And we want to learn more about this population in our state because um, legislation and being able to support them is really important. So we went to the DOC, Department of Correction, and we received some really great and interesting data from them to really, you know, understand how many children are actually impacted by incarceration within our state And the data is very up-to-date. So as of April 1st, 2016, um, 17,929 dependents have an incarcerated caregiver. And that's almost – that's about 54 percent of those who are currently incarcerated. So that's a pretty big population in Connecticut. And when we learned that, we realized, you know, it's even going to be more important for us to try to support these youth and to pass legislation. When we think of the word dependent, do we know that um, these 54 percent of inmates, um, that these dependents are all children? I mean, how do we define that? Right. So that's a great question. And so when we received this data from the Department of Correction, we were told that they and we actually received an intake form that they use throughout the state. Um, they ask how many dependents you have, and there is not an operational definition that you know says a dependent is a child. 
we can assume, and they are also assuming, that a majority of these dependents are children. But because, again, there is not that exact definition, they could also be an older adult who is being taken care of or, you know, a disabled sibling. And we don't know that. Again, we're assuming and, you know, we can likely say that a majority of these dependents are youth. You mentioned that the Annie E. Casey Foundation national report that came out, I believe, in April. Yes, yes. That was kind of the uh, precursor to yeah. looking at what's happening here in Connecticut. So nationally, what do we know about how incarceration impacts children specifically? So nationally, we know that you know there has been this mass incarceration over the past 20 years. We know that there are major racial disparities. And we have to remember that Connecticut is not immune to these racial disparities, particularly for prison populations. We know that when a caretaker becomes incarcerated, that, you know, children experience and can go through a lot. There's a, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered. So where is this child going to go? Who are they going to live with? We know nationally that if a child is living with their mother and she becomes incarcerated, they're more likely to go to a grandparent or another extended family member. If they're living with their father and they become incarcerated, they are more likely to go to their mother if these individuals are around. If they're not, there's a good chance they're going to go into foster care. Um, Another thing that we learned from the Casey Report, again, turning back to racial disparities, is that um, one in, so by the time an African-American child in our country, um, by the time they reach age 14, they have a one in four chance of actually experiencing paternal incarceration. And for white children in our country, there's uh, less than a 4% chance that they will be going through this. So there are really big issues that we do have to address both nationally and within our state. And when they have a a parent in prison, it's impacting them socially, emotionally, their impact, like the repercussions in their um, schoolwork. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when a, um, so experiencing a parent experiencing an incarcerated parent is actually considered to be an adverse childhood experience. And these adverse childhood experiences, if you have one, you're more likely to have others. So other experiences include being around a family member that, you know, has a mental illness, being around a family member that has substance abuse. And the higher or the more traumatic experiences you go through, um, you know, the more difficult it is for you to be successful in school, for you to be successful, um, you know, in ways that normal kids who do not experience these events um, are able to do. And what about the correlation between, you know, is, does the data show that if you have a, a parent that um, is in prison that you may end up in prison yourself? So there are some studies that report there is a higher likelihood of becoming incarcerated if your parent is incarcerated. And we very much want to make sure, particularly for our state, that this does not happen. And that's why we're bringing this to the forefront, because we want to make sure that we can support the youth in the ways that they need to be supported so that they don't have to go through something that their parent experienced. Also in studio with me is Nishka Ayala. She's a Central Connecticut State University student. And you have a very personal connection to this issue, Nishka. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yes. So um, I was about four years old when um, my dad was incarcerated. Um, I remember coming home from school and um, my mom just, you know, there was strangers in my house, the the, um, FBI agents that were investigating, I guess. My dad was not my dad wasn't there. My mom put me and my brothers in the room and, you know, she just like 
try to remain, make sure that we were calm. And um, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I was so young. And, you know, my grandma just came in and picked us up. And after that, I just I didn't see my dad again for a while. Two weeks, maybe two to three weeks after that, we were getting, I just was in Puerto Rico. I used to live in Puerto Rico. We were already moving to Connecticut. And um, it was just a really hard time. You know, it, my dad wasn't around for nine years. Um, when he was incarcerated, he was incarcerated in New Jersey. And me living here in Connecticut, it was really hard for us to see him because it was such a long drive. And I had school. My mom had work. So it we couldn't really, like, see him much. So I want to say I, I saw my dad, like, five, six times a year. And his last year, he was moved to Texas. So I had no physical contact with my dad for a whole year. Um, when he came out of prison, it was very hard for us, for me and my brother, my family, um, adjusting to that because it was basically like having a stranger at home, you know. How old were you when he was arrested? I was about four or five years old. And so you went through this traumatic experience of seeing that and not understanding, and then immediately on, right? your life has changed because yes. you're moving to Connecticut from yes. Puerto Rico. Yes. Do you remember, I know you were young, but do you remember what how it was explained to you what was happening? I don't really remember what was happening um and i was i mean you know like my mom has always been really open minded and um i just she told when she told us i i wasn't i wouldn't understand like what was what was it like to be incarcerated what is being incarcerated cuz i was so young you know like i didn't know why my dad was in there so at that point like i felt guilty basically you know as a child um you don't understand you don't understand and the first time I saw my dad after the arrest, when we went to visit him, it was just really confusing. I was like, why is my dad in here? And why is he wearing his clothes? Why is there other prisoners, well, you know, other people here with him? It was just really hard to understand why. And I never knew the reason why my dad was incarcerated until after I was, like, about 10 years old. That's when I, my mom, you know, sat me and my brothers down and she explained it. And do you remember how you felt when you got the explanation of, of why your father was in prison? Yeah, I, I was, you know, I kind of felt like my dad did what he did for us, for me and my brothers. And, you know, that kind of made, made me feel like, you know, like this is my fault. This is our fault, you know, because he did it for us. Um, but it kind of made me feel like why, like, kind of mad towards my dad too because I feel like he he could have chose a different path chose something different so it was a really hard time for me it was really difficult what kind of support did you and your mother have while your dad was in prison I mean did you know of any um, groups or support services that could help you during this time no not at all I just the only support or service that we really received was one Christmas um we were taken to this facility. It was like a church, um, and there was other kids with um, incarcerated parents there. And there was gifts for us, and the gifts were coming from our— well, they made us believe that the gifts were coming from our parent who was incarcerated. So I think that was really nice, and that's really the only thing I can remember that had to do with like some type of service mm -hmm. that was helping us out. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about how the state can better serve children of incarcerated parents. In studio with me are Erica Dean, policy analyst at the Connecticut Association for Human Services, and you were just hearing from Nishka Ayala, a Central Connecticut State University student and daughter of a formerly incarcerated parent. Erica, as we're hearing a little bit of Nishka's story, um, the work that your nonprofit does, I mean, tell us a little bit about the support. Is this a, is this a common thing that families don't know where to turn? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, what we learned from um, the research that we've been doing and from our partners, we've been working with the Connecticut Children with Incarcerated Parents Initiative, and they're um, based out of CCSU, where Nishka's actually uh, going to college. But we've found that, again, you know, there are a lot of support services, or there are a decent number of support services for youth in Connecticut. And you know, if you do a quick search or if you talk to most or many nonprofits, um, they would be able to direct you to these agencies. And they work with both families. I know um, one agency, they, you know, help youth with art projects and they help them, uh, you know, express their emotions through creativity. And, you know, they do different things with youth and families. So, you know, I think Connecticut is really trying on the program side to you know, get this, make sure that these programs are known and make sure that youth with incarcerated parents have access to these programs. But I think in order to make sure this continues happening and make sure it happens in a better way that we need to, you know, press for some more policy. Nishka, so you were um, obviously a a student in the public school system here in Connecticut? Yes, I was. Was your mother, um, was she open to teachers or guidance counselors about, you know, what was happening in the home, that you had a father that was incarcerated, and was there a way that the schools could help? Well, actually, um, during my middle school years, um, I used to have, like, random breakdowns in school, and I was always sent to guidance, to guidance counselors. And I feel like every time I brought up the subject, they would try to avoid it, and they didn't really know how to respond to it or how to, like, what to do. And they would always tell my mom that she needed to get me involved in extracurricular activities and that they didn't really understand what it was that was going on, you know. I feel like um, they just didn't know how to deal with it. And so your father, he was serving time for a drug conviction, was that right? Yes. And so now he's out. Yes. And so talk a little bit about, you know, the fact that he was away for, was it nine years, and you said that he felt like a stranger to you and your family. Yes, yes. Um, So... You know, we were very excited because dad was coming home, you know, obviously who wouldn't want to have both parents in their home? But it was, <laughs> it was, I'm sorry, but it was just extremely difficult because my dad wanted to play the father role and we weren't used to that. So we didn't really have much respect for him, you know, and he wanted to implement all these new rules that we weren't used to. Um, when my dad was in prison, he he was uh, going to church in prison, and he, when he got out of prison, he was very, like, holy and spiritual. And he expected us to, like, go to church, read the Bible with him, and um, he didn't want me wearing, like, certain clothes and painting my nails. And it was things like that that I was doing for my whole life, and he wanted to change that, and it was just, like, very hard, you know. And him and my older brother, they had a lot of conflict because basically my brother was was the one who was protecting me and my younger siblings and sorry my younger brother and um you know when my dad came I guess like he felt like 
he was trying to take over and it was just really hard to get used to it there was a lot of fights and problems at home when at first but things started getting better afterwards we're going to find out more about some of these support programs that are in place to help um, youth like Nishka and others who have a, a parent incarcerated. When we return, we'll hear from one of those community organizations. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the effects of mass incarceration on children. In a recent report, the Annie E. Casey Foundation examined the impact of incarceration on children, families, and the community. Researchers found that African-American youth are seven times more likely than white children to have a parent in prison. Latino kids are three times more likely than their white peers to have a parent in prison. In studio with me are Erica Dean, policy analyst at the Connecticut Association for Human Services, and Nishka Ayala, a Central Connecticut State University student and daughter of a formerly incarcerated parent. And joining us by phone now is Joyce Betts. She's CEO of Families in Crisis Incorporated. Joyce, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your organization and how you support youth like Nishka. Thank you. So Families in Crisis has been around for over 35 years, providing services to uh, people who are involved in the criminal justice system, and more importantly, their families. We are uh, one of few uh, in the state of Connecticut and also nationally uh, whose sole purpose is to work with this population. Our work that we provide for children that have a parent incarcerated started in the late 90s uh, through uh, funding through National Institute of Corrections uh, to really start uh, specializing in services uh, unique to this population. And so we started those services uh, with an after-school program, and there was not a lot of research at that time. Uh, this was a very much hidden population. Uh, so we were, uh, for the most part, really uh, going on sort of our best hunches about what it is that children that had a parent incarcerated needed. One of the things that we found very early on uh, was that each child experienced the incarceration in a very different way. One of the more important things that we realized is that the relationship prior to incarceration definitely predicted sort of what some of those challenges would be um, during that incarceration. And so some of the services that we provide um, from uh, the, our initial funding to the funding that we receive now um, centered around transportation, making sure that children just had access to their parent. Um, also around case management, making sure that families were able to meet their basic needs and also around counseling, helping families to adjust to maybe the incarceration um, or to their return back to the community. And Joyce, how, are, how does your organization hear about um, these families. And so that's, that's the challenge. <laughs> you know, as much as, you know, when we first started, it was a hidden population, it still remains to be a hidden population. And so we hear about them uh, through very different or from various resources. Uh, sometimes we hear about them through the, uh, the incarcerated parents themselves. And so we do outreach into the correctional facilities, letting them know about our programming. And so they contact their families and their families contact us. Uh, sometimes we hear through them from teachers. I know Nishka mentioned um, a guidance counselor, and so we do presentations at some of the local public schools, make, making sure they understand that we have services available. I thought it was interesting you said that sometimes you hear about the families in the community from the person who's incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So um, they're worried about there not being support for their mm -hmm. family um, while they're doing their time. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that and when 
when we look at the state of Connecticut, you know, this emphasis on reentry and helping, um, you know, with the Governor's Second Chance Society, the emphasis is always on, on the individual and how they're going to transition back in the community, get a job, support their family. Um, but there's also that other side of, of, you know, how do they integrate within that family? As Nishka said, she didn't see her dad for nine years other than yeah. the occasional visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what's really um, important to realize as we're talking about second chances. You know, one of the things we say is that families have been giving second chances long before, you know, uh, we are now recognizing that that's what we need to do um, on a public policy level. And so one of the things that's really important is that families um, are the ones who are providing job leads. They're the ones providing housing for those who are returning to the community, um, such as Niska's dad, but also around those family dynamics. What does it mean for him to come home? What does it mean for mom to come home? You know, what are some of those barriers that they're going to have to address um, to make uh, make that transition successful? And so we provide those services that help them adjust to those things. And how many organizations like Families in Crisis are there in the state? Um, that I know of, probably about three. Um, and I will say, though, there is a now an emphasis on uh, providing services to children um, that have a parent that is incarcerated. And so although there are other agencies that provide that service, um, there are only a few that specifically work with this population, and that's our sole population. I wanted to turn uh, to Erica Dean, uh, who is a policy analyst of the Connecticut Association for Human Services. So, Erica, um, Families in Crisis and three other groups doesn't sound like a lot. And so we we hear that maybe some state agencies are reaching out now. But um, what are some policy changes that need to happen after looking at your report? Yeah, so... um One of the major things that Joyce actually just mentioned, and we do cover in the report, and this wasn't data that we received from DOC. We kind of did our own sort of research on this, but she mentioned transportation barriers, which impact, of course, visitation. And so when in our report, what we actually did is we took the five most populated cities in Connecticut, you know, Stamford, Waterbury, New Haven, Hartford, Um, Bridgeport, I think that's five. And we looked at the average round-trip travel time it would take using uh, public transportation and also private transportation, so using a car, to each correctional facility within the state. And we found that if you're originating in New Haven, your average round-trip travel time using public transportation would be over six hours. And that, and you know, if you are taking a bus or using public transportation, they're not necessarily dropping you off right next to the correctional facility. So if you do have children, you know, they may drop you off half a mile, a mile, wherever that bus stop is, that far distance from the correctional facility. Then you have to take your stroller. You have to, you know, make that trek to that facility. And the same thing with um, traveling by car. I mean. It is going to be shorter, but if you're originating from Stanford, your round-trip travel time on average is going to be about three hours. And this round-trip travel time is actually going to be more than the amount of time you get to spend with your incarcerated loved one or your parent. So it's this really, really long day and this long process that ends up with you you know, maybe getting to see your mom or your dad for an hour. And it, it's, it's really hard for families to be able to do this on a regular basis. And, you know, we do know that um, I know Families in Crisis has and, you know, perhaps still does provide transportation to correctional facilities. But, you know, we have to further address this issue and making sure that children do have, 
you know, this access to their parents because that parent-child attachment relationship, especially when they're young, is so important. And so many studies have shown that. So when someone is sentenced, I mean, there was a legislation on family impact statements. So yeah. talk about how something like that, that kind of uh, policy change, you know, could help families. Yeah. So a family impact statement um, is basically allowing the defendant to write something, say something that basically you know, tells the judge and other people who are involved in this sentencing process, you know, tells the judge about their relationship with this child, whether they live with their child, whether they are the financial provider for their child, um, you, you know, if they are the sole caregiver, where their child may have to go if they do become incarcerated. And of course, we do want to make sure that people understand um, these family impact statements will take into account the severity of the crime that this individual did commit. And we also want to make sure that everybody is safe in these situations. But if we you know, require a judge um, or the jury or whoever to pay attention to these family impact statements and put that into policy, we can you know, hope and know really that these youth are going to be you know, their likelihood of traumatization might decrease because of these statements. And we previously tried to pass legislation um, to implement family impact statements within Connecticut in 2014. Um, it was SB 361, I believe. So it was a Senate bill. And it was met with very high bipartisan support within our Judiciary Committee, passed through that committee very easily. Then it went into the Senate, passed through the Senate, and it died in the House. And we're not really sure why it died in the House. But in looking at the fiscal analysis, I mean, this does not cost any money. And, you know, we are concerned today in Connecticut about our budget deficit. And, you know, we are in debt. So passing a policy like this would really just be helpful. It would help the parents. It would help the children. And it would be of no cost to, you know, any agency or any state. Was there any opposition from the court system? I mean, the idea that, you know, the judge is looking at the type of crime and when they're sentencing someone, you know, to have another, I guess, a mandate that says, well, can you try to put this person, you know, yeah. closer to this family? I mean, I mean, what was the, I guess, pushback there? If at I all? know there was um, a little bit of pushback. And I right now I'm forgetting the agency that did push back a little bit. And they were saying that family impact statements were already used and implemented throughout Connecticut. And unfortunately, we know that is not true. And, you know, some judges may be listening to these statements, but in order to make sure that youth are, you know, protected and supported, we want this to be a statewide um, policy and not just be, you know, have some judges do this and have, you know, some individuals not do this. Um, yeah. And, and Nishka, um, your father was in prison in New Jersey. So that's a whole other element of having to travel down to New Jersey during those years. How often did you see him? <sighs> I want to say about five, six times a year. Um, like Erica said, the travel time, it was longer than what we actually got to sit in with my dad. So, you know, we would the drive would be like four or five hours. And then to get in the facility, we would have to wait like another three hours. And then we would be with my dad for like two hours. And then it was just, it was really long, a really long time. Looking back, I mean, how um, how often would you have liked to have seen him? Every day. <laughs> Every day, um, I even look for to the phone calls, but even the phone calls weren't long because they're so expensive. And my dad would only be able to call like once a week or every two weeks. And then it, we had a house phone, so he would call the house phone. So if we weren't home, we wouldn't be able to talk to him. And I remember actually one time I was telling my dad a story, and I was so excited to talk to my dad. And then all of a sudden, 
we had 30 seconds left on the call and you know things like that it, it, it it's hard it's hard yeah and Joyce uh, Betts on the phone, uh, CEO of Families in Crisis Incorporated. Um, tell me about a little bit more about that counseling that happens after the fact when the incarcerated person has done their time, has been released back into the community, and they have to um, get to know their children, their spouse, uh, the people in their neighborhood again. Um, how hard is it, and how does your counseling impact recidivism rates? Is there a, have you been able to track that? And so I'm going to answer this in, in two ways. And, mm-hmm. and one of them is um, addressing the issue regarding transportation and access. And so, uh, of course, the we could make the assumption and also the um, data shows that if a family stays connected throughout the incarceration, which means having access um, to that um, incarcerated parent, um, being able to visit them on a regular basis, um, then them transitioning back into the community is a lot easier. Those who don't have that access, it makes it a lot more difficult because you have to reestablish those relationships. You have to be able to um, reestablish those dynamics within the um, within the family. And so, being able to provide counseling, and let me be very clear when I say counseling, every every family doesn't need a diagnosis, and every child doesn't need a diagnosis. Sometimes, what they want to be is just heard. They want to know what's coming. They want to know, have a little bit of a sense of what's going on or what can I anticipate with my, when my loved one comes back home. Um, sometimes what happens is they get so very excited about the reunion, and I think that's what Niska was talking about. They get so very excited about dad is coming home that sometimes you don't realize how challenging that's going to be after the first two weeks. And so what we try to do is we try to educate families around what some of those challenges are going to be. And so if we can prepare them for them, they can start to talk about some of those issues and talk about some of those things that they would need to work on prior to um, mom or dad coming home and then also continue to work on those things while um, they're transitioning back um, into the community. I will say one of the challenges um, and services that we provide for families and for um, children um, as well is that sometimes these are the first services to go in economic times and that's what makes it very challenging. We talked a lot about transportation and that's one of our uh, programming um, needs that is uh, uh, um, that is in jeopardy at this particular moment. Um, so we do provide transportation to the different correctional facilities. Um, but at, unfortunately, you know, moving into this new fiscal year, we're not really sure we're going to be able to continue to provide that. So we're going to have to reach out to, you know, non um, I'm sorry, foundations and other private support to be able to continue that. And we've just heard how important that was for Nishka um, to be able to see, touch, and feel her dad and talk to him um, and how important it is for others to be able to do that as well. So, Nishka, how long has your dad um, been with you now, now that he's served his time? Uh, I was 14, uh, 13, going on 14 when he was uh, released, and I am now 21. <laughs> so tell me about that transition. You said that at first it was it was rough, but what's your relationship like now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a daddy's girl now. <laughs> <laughs> I love my dad, and, you know, we're very close now. And sometimes my mom even gets jealous because she I always call my dad for everything, and even— I mean, a couple years after, um, our relationship started getting, like, really good. And I would come, I would go to my dad before I went to my mom. We went to, like, talk about my crushes and things like that. And I I just love my dad. And he everything is just going so well. And everything is just amazing right now. So I'm happy that it's this way. I want to take a call now from uh, State Representative Douglas McCrory. You're on Where We Live. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. That's wonderful. I was listening to your conversation. Uh, actually, I'm going to be on a panel discussion later this afternoon at the Capitol around this issue. 
I thought it was very good idea to have this conversation. It's very important. Can I ask you? Go ahead. Um, can I ask you, uh, Representative McCrory, um, hearing from the work that Joyce Betts is doing with families in crisis and the fact that the state is now in this uh, tight budget crunch, you know, how can the state help families like uh, Nishka's and others uh, when you have limited resources? Well, that's a great, that's a very good question. And uh, Family in Crisis is probably the organization that I'm quite familiar with that specifically deals with this population, um, and they need to be supported. Unfortunately, some of their funding has been cut. But hopefully we can restore it. I think this, this concept that we're talking about is very important. I recall when I first got to the legislature, uh, legislation back in 2006, one of the first things that came to mind was what are we going to do with children who are, have parents incarcerated? And by 2010, we got fund- I actually were able to get funding for uh, this particular type of concept or program. Unfortunately, the funding has been there, but in my opinion, the policy decisions that affect these children and their families have not been in place. And what I look forward to doing was working with the advocates um, during the next year so we can come up with some policies that can uh, um, change the directory of our children and our families are in. I was listening about SB 361, which I thought was a, a simple concept that we do, the family impact statement. Unfortunately, that didn't get passed. I think it's very important that we work together uh, this particular year so we can put some policy in place that can change the, the way our children and our families are operating under, under the system. All right, Representative McCrory, thank you so much for calling Where We Live. We just have a few moments. I wanted to turn back to Erica Dean, policy analyst with the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Let's talk about a little bit more about some of the policy changes that your organization and others are advocating the state go towards. Sure. So, what our goal really is right now is, and you know, again, we're working with the Connecticut Children with Incarcerated Parents Initiative, and we've partnered together. And you know, we did mention trying to pass the um, Family Impact Statement legislation again. There's another piece of legislation that um, was brought up in New York in March, and basically they introduced a bill that would ensure that adults with dependents would be placed in correctional facilities as close to you know where these children live as possible, and that's another. Um, piece of legislation that would not necessarily cost a lot of money, if any money, to our state. Um, but, you know, to really further inform these policy, these pieces of policy that we would like to introduce, what we want to really do and right now is focus on collecting more data, learning more about these children, you know, making sure we know how many children are actually affected by parental incarceration as opposed to dependents. We also would love to know, you know, where these residents are from, where these children are from, and even probably most importantly, and what we really want to do is to have the policy agenda and have our legislation that we are going to be writing and preparing for for this 2017 session to be informed by those who have been impacted by parental incarceration. You know, we want to talk to those, I mean, maybe not youth, but the the individuals who have experienced this, families, you know, even um, individuals who are married to a person who's currently incarcerated. We want to know specifically what these barriers are and struggles for for people in Connecticut because the Annie E. Casey um, Foundation, you know, it is a national report. And really, we appreciate their policy recommendations and their program recommendations. And we're going to use those. But we really, really know that to make the most effective policy, to make sure that these children are supported, um, is to actually hear from those voices. 
And speaking of state agencies, there are several that are going to be sitting at this panel discussion where you're going to talk more about this report. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, so we're really excited for today. Um, again, our agency and Connecticut Children with Incarcerated Parents Initiative, we have a terrific panel that um, we'll be speaking with today. We have the Commissioner of the Department of Corrections, Scott Semple, joining us. We have the Chief of Staff for the Department of Children and Families, Elizabeth Durier. We also have Joyce Betts, who has been speaking. Of course, Nishka will be on our panel. We have um, Representative Douglas McCrory, who you also heard from. And um, we also have somebody flying up from Baltimore um, from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Scott Spencer. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. I want to thank Erica Dean, policy analyst at the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Also, also Nishka Ayala, who's a student at Central Connecticut State University. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. And Joyce Betts, CEO of Families in Crisis Incorporated. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, flowers are blooming and bees, butterflies, and other pollinating insects are flying. But some of those pollinators are in decline. How are changes in the environment impacting them? On Friday's show, a roundtable discussion. Also, what can you do to help keep pollinators healthy? That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're focusing on the criminal justice system. Recently, there's been a lot of attention surrounding the governor's latest proposals under his Second Chance Society, including raising the age of juvenile jurisdiction so 18 to 20-year-olds charged with nonviolent offenses would be referred to juvenile court instead of adult court. Meanwhile, there's another wide-ranging bill that the General Assembly has supported, and that, that aims to reform the current juvenile justice system. In studio with me is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas from the Connecticut Mirror. She's been covering uh, this issue for some time. Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the work of the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee and how they um, influence this bill that's won support in the General Assembly. Sure. So um, currently there's about 11,000 youth or adolescents rather that are arrested at age 18, 19, or 20, and almost three quarters of those are the most serious offenses for a misdemeanor. And so when this discussion about raising the jurisdiction for the juvenile justice system, some of the advocates said, well, hey, let's improve the juvenile justice system as well. In, in addition, that's a great compliment to the go governor's proposals on increasing the juvenile justice age. And so there was this omnibus bill that was passed unanimously in both the House and Senate in some of the final days of the legislative session that just ended that would do several things. So it, first, it would improve the education component of kids who do enter the juvenile justice system, as well as try to prevent kids from entering the juvenile justice system by ensuring youth who are sort of headed down the wrong path, who get into trouble at school, are, um, one, no longer refer referred to court for truancy if they habitually miss school um, or if for violation of school rules. So that alone is going to reduce by hundreds of, of children who are referred to the court system in the first place. And then in addition to that, the, this, the legislature, th this bill that was passed, would also make it so that when youth are expelled from school, they're provided with a full-time alternative education program that has guidelines on standards that those alternatives have. That's currently not in place. Right now, there are state 
law what was requiring an alternative education program, but it was silent on what an alternative or what, what level of quality that must be. So this would move it to a full-time alternative. So if kids aren't in school, they're not getting in trouble. Um, or the, as the idea goes, if kids aren't in school, then what are they doing with their time? So um, that's sort of the educational component side of it. So when you say that, it's severing that so-called school-to-prison pipeline that has been a problem in the past. Right, yeah. So this is hoping to to reduce the number by hundreds, if not thousands, of kids who even enter the juvenile justice system in the first place by catching them early on in the system. And then in addition to that, once kids do end up in the system, there are some changes in this bill that would significantly change which youth are allowed to be held in pretrial detention. And so each year, about 1,700 youth are held in detention while they await trial. Um, there has long been a concern that youth are being held because that's the only place for them to get mental health services. So it's sort of acting as a default system mm-hmm. to get those services, as well as because they might be a danger to themselves because they keep running away from whatever program or home or their in, in their home. They keep running away or, um, you know, they're hanging out with gangs in the community or or whatever the, the danger to themselves was was. A problem, and or they violated parole, which the violation itself was not a new crime, but they were in violation of their parole. So, under this new law, or I shouldn't say law yet, um, this bill that was passed unanimously, it would remove those reasons for holding youth in pretrial detention and would limit it strictly to if they are a risk to themselves, or sorry, a risk to the public or if there is a new offense that they need to be charged with, or if there is another state that is waiting, that they are awaiting charges on and being held for that state to pick them up. And so um, that reporting that you did on, on this particular part of the bill, there was some pushback from prosecutors, right? There was some pushback from par- prosecutors. Um, they, the, um, like what were their concerns about it? There was a concern. There was a, a very um, strong back and forth between um, the chief juvenile judge for the judicial branch and the the top prosecutor for juvenile matters in the state of sort of this discussion of well if you can't if if the the looming threat of them being put back in pretrial detention because they miss their curfew or they don't follow their house arrest you know it, uh, those orders are only as good as they're enforceable as sort of this argument goes and the the concern is that, you know, youth aren't going to listen to if you have a curfew, but there's no consequence, then what happens? Um, the response to that has been that the consequence is a graduated model by providing them, you know, residential placement in the community or potentially commitment to DCF if it does get so dire that, that there is a situation or that they get the services that they potentially need in the community for, you know, substance abuse treatment, if that's what they're running away, if if that's why they're not following their curfew, provide them substance abuse treatment and hopefully, um, and then step it up as far as the graduated response goes. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, some of the youth that are committed to DCF and uh, may be held at the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. Can we shift to that and um, how the governor's uh, mandate that that facility closed by 2018, you know, what's the progress in that plan? So there's a lot of momentum behind that. It's been brought up by a previous administration to close that facility. It's been riddled in controversy since it opened. 
um, or even before it opened. Um, so the um, and I think why it gained some momentum this year is for two reasons. The state's facing a major deficit and that facility costs over 50 million dollars a year to operate. Um, as well as a recent report by the Office of the Child Advocate that found um, that that concluded that youth were unlawfully being restrained and put in solitary confinement for hours at a time. And that received a lot of public backlash on that facility and the practices that were taking place there. The DCF made some changes at the, at the facility following legislative hearings. Um, but that hasn't stopped the momentum to close the facility. The governor announced shortly after um, some of those those controversies happened that he would be closing the facility by July 2018. And all indicators are that that's on, on progress to, to actually happen. Um, the DCF has been tasked with the job to come up with a plan to close that facility, and they have said that they expect a draft plan to be presented to the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee next, as early as next month, or expected to be next month. And the, I guess the overarching theme of all of this conversation and progress is that, you know, advocates for juveniles will say if you if you want to help children to not continue in the system, you just want to you want to keep them out of the juvenile system, juvenile justice system to begin with. And so the answer isn't always to detain them, but to give them services and community supports to help, um, you know, change their behavior. So um, if the facility closes, what then? What happens to these individuals? That's a really good question that I look forward to reading <laughs> in the plan of what the alternative are, alternatives are. Um, there is sort of this dilemma of, it, yes, it costs $50 million to operate that facility, um, but you are going to need alternatives. So how much of that can be reinvested and and what happened to make sure all of that is not rated to to help close future budget shortfalls. Um, there is a very real concern that that will happen, um, but you also have some really strong advocates pushing for that not to happen, and and that money being reinvested back into community based supports. The Department of Children and Families has said that there will always be a need for a state run facility. Um, so that we're not in t- so the state is not relying entirely on private providers who um, will call them up and say, "Hey, I this this kid is really acting out. He keeps running away. Whatever the reasons that a private provider might not um, be able to take a child, the commissioner has said she feels that the state will always need to have a fa- have a facility. The deputy commissioner said last month that he believes the population for state fund state run facilities locked facilities will never top more than 40 or 45 boys at any given on any given day mm-hmm. so um you're that's a drastic decline from the current level of youth who were detained at CJTS just 2 years ago it was at 160 so they they really have decreased the number of youth who are at CJTS and and have said that we think it's about 40 or 45 who need who need these locked secure placements. We just have a few minutes left, but I wanted, you've been covering uh, juvenile justice efforts and reform for some time. You know, when we look at Connecticut, so often it's pointed as a state that can model um, uh, the changes for other states. You know, are there any states that have closed down their facilities for juvenile delinquents that um, are seen as a model for Connecticut? Um, That's a good question, and I don't know the answer. 
I know that the Annie Casey Foundation, I know you just had some people on talking about that foundation earlier. Um, they they did last year, I believe it was, or all my years start to merge together. It was either last year or the, the year previously that they re, their leader called for the closure of juvenile facilities, locked facilities, um, similar to the one in Connecticut and has really, you know, applauded Connecticut's approach to downsizing the number of youth incarcerated. And what's interesting, just a few years ago, DCF was calling for a specific secure unit for girls. And the Pueblo unit was opened, money was spent. And I think earlier this year, I mean, there haven't been girls put in that facility um, since beginning of 2016, I believe. Right. Um, the last I heard, the the last girl that had been there was in January. So it has been empty for months, which has helped with the the number of staff that you need at that facility, they have said. Um, you have youth who, uh, you have um, 100, I believe it's 106 layoffs at CJTS, and CJTS and Pueblo are all part of one um, CJTS. Mm-hmm. And one's for boys and one for one is for girls. And so that has helped with the savings. We were talking about that wide-ranging bill um, recommended by the Juvenile Justice and Policy and Oversight Committee. It's on Governor Malloy's desk. He's um, going to sign it, right, because of, of who sits on that committee? He's expected to sign it. His administration worked with the, the crafting of that bill. His Office and Policy Management Chief Ben Barnes is the co-chair of the JPOC committee that crafted the bill, and his administration was involved, I am told, from on the shepherding of that bill through the legislature. And before we let you go, Jackie, any th- any big changes or ideas that did not go through this session that may we may see in reintroduced next session related to juvenile justice reform? There are a lot of things that will be reintroduced. So the what also was included in this report or in the bill is the mandate for several reports for um, to cost out different services that are necessary in the juvenile justice system, in the education system, so something like an educational advocate. So every youth who goes through the juvenile justice system gets an educational surrogate to help them go back to the community once they leave a secure facility. I've been speaking with Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can read all of her great reporting at ctmirror.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. 